Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your uh, beauty and character of love and for Jesus Christ. And we ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us and enlighten us and empower us to send a message to the world that will open an avenue for you to return soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And I have a few announcements to make. Uh, just want to remind people about the new paradigm to, and what the purpose of this is about. The purpose is not primarily about the heavenly sanctuary and the investigative judgment, even though that's what the new paradigm is uh, sharing, a new paradigm on the heavenly sanctuary and investigative judgment. The real core issue in the um, pamphlet is how do you understand God's law? Do you understand God's law as design law? He's the creator, the builder of reality, the protocols upon which life exists? Or do you see him running his universe no different than a Roman Caesar, making up rules and inflicting punishments? And this paradigm, uh, historically in Adventism, much of what's been taught about the Heavenly Sanctuary Investigative Judgment has been taught through an imperial human law lens uh, as a a system of rules, a judicial process, reviewing record books, uh, somewhat distant and devoid of what's happening in the hearts and minds people. And this actually demonstrates that the real message is nothing like that at all, that God is actually preparing his people, healing them to be able to stand and live in his presence for eternity. And that's what the message is really about, to, to, to challenge people's views of God's law, which goes to the core of his character. So we've got uh, cases of these. If you want to take and share some with people, we encourage you to do that. Other announcements, the January 17 to 19, 2020 Come and reason, the Power of Love training and equipping course. The website is now open. Go to events.comeandreason.com and you can see the entire list of lineups of lectures and the plan and program and how you can sign up and come for the two-day event if you'd like to be there. And I put in the notes some of the goals and and objectives of of the weekend. Our lesson today is Lesson 7 in the Quarterly Family Seasons, and the title is Keys to Family Unity. And and from an online listener, Marissa Johnson, I, I received an email last week, and it says the following. I did quite enjoy your comments about functioning in a healthy family and its impact on both the person and community. I wanted to share one description of what taking personal responsibility for the impact of damaging parental behavior on the person that I heard one time and that I have in turn shared with my kids and my nieces and nephews. For me, it has been helpful and I suspect could offer some help to others. Imagine one's life is characterized by a car. On vacation, you visit San Francisco and while parked on one of the hilly streets of San Francisco, while you're out sightseeing, a car parked up the hill from yours suffers loss of control, parking brake failure. What is the impact on your car? How much damage could occur? And then the owner of the car, whose brake system failed, comes along, finds the two cars collided with each other. Instead of being responsible, they take away their car without leaving any kind of notification to you, the owner, of your car. This is done out of fear of reprisal, loss of insurance, loss of money, fear of hassle. So they leave the site. It is a hit-and-run type event. Later in the day, you return and you find your car smashed, not able to be driven. At that point... Whose responsibility is it to get the car moved and return to drivable condition? The other guy or yours? Since you own it, it's yours. No, you did not cause the damage. But repair of it in the face of a hit-and-run damage is your responsibility, both for your own benefit and to be able to uh, drive for and for that of your family and community so you can still report for duty to your job and take your kids to school. This is a simple illustration, though not perfect, 
has been helpful in dealing with others, parents, teachers, friends, and other family members who cause hurt and damage. Thank you for your good work and for showing us all another way to consider and apply grace. So what, what lessons, what do you think of the metaphor that, that was sent in, and, and what lessons do you think apply? See, we are not responsible for what other people do. Whether good or bad, we're not responsible for what other people do to us. But we're responsible when we grow to the age of comprehension, ability to discern and, and make choices. We're responsible for the choices we make. Do we reject healthy avenues and options when they are available, or do we participate in them? Do we have a mindset of personal responsibility that we have the responsibility to be the healthiest, most mature individuals we are capable of being, regardless of our histories? Or do we have the mindset that others owe us something? That we either cannot or will not grow, mature, develop until some other person or group or government apologizes, shows us love, pays reparations, or some other action. I have many patients who have been abused by their families while children or have been bullied in school or have been treated unfairly or cruelly by society, yet they all don't end up with the same outcomes. Some of these persons have taken the approach of healing and developing themselves. Others have taken the approach of trying to get the offender to change, to show them love, remorse, sorrow, or to some way acknowledge their wrong and, and try to make amends. Or the person tries, the person who's been injured tries to make the wrongdoer pay them in some way with, with, with you know, punishments of some kind. Which approach do you think results in the best outcomes from the person who was abused? I give a different metaphor. If, if someone attacked you and broke your leg and then ran off and, and you didn't even know who it was, maybe you did know who it was either way, but your leg is broken, what's the healthy action to take? Wait until we can find, identify, catch, and hold accountable the person who broke your leg? Or regardless of that, go get your leg fixed. And, and I will tell you when it comes to some of these abuse issues, many people get stuck in wanting to hold the other accountable or making the other be sorry or make the other uh, change or get the other to be more affectionate or loving, depending on what the relationship is and so forth. If a person takes the approach of focusing on healing their wounds, becoming the healthiest, most Christ-like person in governance of themselves, they are capable of becoming through God's grace. If they take that approach, does that mean the wrong done to them was a good thing? It does not. It was still wrong. Does it mean that the person who wronged them, if, if you don't take the approach of trying to make them pay, hold them accountable, take the approach of healing yourself and God's grace, does that mean the other person gets away with it? No. no, it does not. Why not? When you understand design law, every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, sears their conscience, hardens their heart, warps their character. No one can hurt another person without damaging themselves. You can't do it. So they don't get away with it. But if you have an imperial law construct that, well, the problem is the behavior and it's a rule and if somebody doesn't enforce it, if you're not brought before the judge and he doesn't fine you and you're not punished in some way, then you got away with it. You, got, you were speeding 45 in a 20 zone. You weren't pulled over. You didn't get a ticket. Well, then you got away with it. That's how human law works. And if you view God's law like that, well, you molested this child. You were never caught. You weren't put in jail. You got away with it. No, you didn't. 
you seared your conscience. You hardened your heart. You warped your character. You corrupted your soul. You can't get away with it. Sabbath lesson, memory text, is uh, John 17, 21. It says, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What is Jesus talking about here? That he and his Father were one in thought, character, purpose, and everything. That's what they want us to be, like them. And is there a theological term for this? And how do we typically say that word? This is atonement. At one meant being one, being unified. Jesus is describing atonement. If this is atonement, if you believe that Jesus is describing at one meant, what must happen? What's required to occur in order to achieve what Jesus is describing? I pray that they will be one. I pray they all may be one as you, Father, and me, and I in you. What must happen here if we're going to achieve that? A change of heart. A change of heart. So where is the work of Christ in God occurring in order to achieve atonement? Then on the day of atonement, what is Christ doing? Do you understand what I'm, I'm pointing out to you all? Because historically... This idea of the Day of Atonement, the antitypical Day of Atonement, does not have Christ working in your heart to bring you into unity. It has been taught that Christ is in a smoky room in heaven, opening up record books, looking at historical facts or deeds, and going over um, you know, registries in order to determine who's asked for a legal payment to be applied to a legal account, and going before the Father and saying, My blood, Father, has paid their debt, and you get erasure out of a book. It's a fraud. It cheats people out of true atonement. It's not working in data sets like that unless you understand what's actually recorded in the books, which is what we describe here. And what's actually recorded in the books of heaven are your character. Characters, individualities, identities of people. That's what's recorded there. And so going to the books and opening up all those who trust him, removing all residual elements of selfishness and fear and sinfulness out of our characters. That's what's being described metaphorically as cleansing the sanctuary, bringing us into unity and oneness with God. That's where the work is happening. We've got to reject this imperial law lie and rise up as a people and give a final message of mercy to the world about God's character, love, and how his Government operates on design law and how his plan is to actually heal us so we can live in his presence. Second paragraph. Yet whether as parents or children in a family, we all struggle with the same thing and this is our sinful fallen natures which can make unity in family life very challenging to say the least. If we all struggle with the same sinful fallen natures, what is the solution then for salvation? A new nature. A new nature. That's the, is, anybody disagree with that? We have to be reborn, recreated, have the heart circumcised of the spirit, have the law written on the heart and mind, um, be regenerated. Uh, have, I mean, this is the, all the metaphors of Scripture. We have to have a new nature. Can we create a new nature? No. No, no we can't do that. So Jesus became human. And as a human being, using his human abilities, 
He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews, I think it's 4.15. And in his humanity, he loved perfectly and refused to use his abilities or make choices to serve self or save self. Thus, when he died on the cross, he, in his humanity, destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness and restored perfect selfless love into the humanity he assumed. As Hebrews says, Hebrews 5.9, quote, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. But Bible perfection is about not about sinlessness. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And character cannot be created by God. Character is developed by the choices of the being. Adam corrupted his character. All human beings are born with propensities that impair our ability and our power to develop perfect, sinless character. We can't do it. So Christ came and achieved what we could never achieve. Thus, in Jesus, the person, the humanity, the individual, the species human was saved and perfected in the person of Jesus while he simultaneously developed the cure, the remedy, that all of us can participate in as he freely offers it to us. So Ellen White put it this way in Desire of Ages, page uh, 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. Why does the law require this? If you understand design law, just think, why does the law of respiration require that you breathe? It's a requirement. The law requires breathing. Well, that's so unfair. You die without breathing. That's because that's how life is built. The law of God is the law upon how life is built. That's why it requires righteousness. No, it's no arbitrary rule. It is simply how life works. A man cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ came, uh, but Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Wait a second. Didn't Christ have a perfect character before coming to earth? Before coming to earth, yes. Yes. So, so why would he need to develop one if he's already got one? Because he took human form. Ah, see, he had perfect divine character. There was not a concern for perfect divine character, but there was no perfect human character. And so he came as a human and developed a perfect human character. And exercising his human abilities in order to do this. So, and keep me with the quote. He developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift. Where, do, If you want to accept the gift of Jesus, a holy life and a perfect character, where do you receive such a gift? In the ledger? In your heart. In your, in your living being. This is not how... The imperial penal views teach things. We receive the gift of his shed blood, which is a legal payment applied to a registry in heaven to pay the penalty of the law to a wrathful God who won't kill us now because he's been recompensed. That's paganism. That's Baal worship. No, we receive the gift in our hearts and minds. His life stands for the life of men. 
What does that mean? His life stands for life. How, how does that happen? What does that mean? He became the new head of humanity. He became the second Adam. He stands in heaven in God's council where Adam was supposed to stand. If you understand the councils of heaven where the sons of God come and gather, a representative head from every intelligent species in all the worlds where God has made life comes and represents that species. Adam was to be the head of humanity. Christ Jesus is now the head of humanity. Do you understand the privilege? When the council of the universe meets and all the representative heads of all the created beings come and gather before God, created beings represent all the other created beings. We have God representing us. Get your mind around that. We are, have a closer intimacy with our Creator because of Christ's self-sacrifice. In reality, He has a dual purpose in heaven, representing man and also saving man. That's right. Keeping on with the quote, His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Why do we have remission of sins that are past? Because the payment has been made. The price has been paid. The punishment has been meted out. The wrath of God has been vented. He's been propitiated by the blood. No, wrong. All that's fraudulent. That's the corruption in Christianity. That's what Christ is waiting for us to free our minds from so we can heal the spirit temple and restore his image within us. We have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. No payments involved. How can that be? Design law. Think design law. Think if you had somebody who was sick with an Ebola infection, and, and with, during this infection they're bleeding out of different body orifices, and, and, and this blood gets on, on, on clothing and carpet and, and, and furniture, and it makes a huge mess. But there's a remedy. They've partaken of the remedy. They're well today. Do we hold against them all the mess that they made in the past when they were sick? Or do we forgive that through forbearance? There's no price. There's no penalty to be paid. They're well. The question isn't, did we make messes while we were living in sin in this world? The question is, what's the condition of your heart and mind today? Have you been restored? Have you been set free? Have you been healed? Do you have a, a, the mind of Christ today? Continuing on with the quote, more than, more than this, meaning more than remission of sins that are past. Remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. More than this. Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be, now quoting Romans, God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. So, for those who trust God, the Holy Spirit takes the perfection of Christ and imbues it into our hearts. We get new desires, new motives, new insights, new attitudes, new longings. All the goodness we experience in any person is a gift of God. But we must simultaneously choose to trust Him, love those attributes, identify with them, choose to move in that direction, apply those principles as we understand them to our lives putting them into practice. And this is just. See what justice is? If you have a child dying from any disease and you have the cure and remedy, what is the just thing for you to do? 
provided for them freely. That's the just and right thing to do. And if the child of it, and maybe it's an adult child, they absolutely refuse. They won't take it. They won't take it. They won't take it. You keep doing everything you can to make it available and to, to inspire and, and, and woo them to, to take this remedy. But if they won't, what happens? What's eventually the outcome? And so the Bible says, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. Not from God. This is design law. We have to free ourselves from this idea that in order for God to be just, he's got to punish sinners. So in families, can there be healthy families if a person is looking out for self, looking to get for self? Is there a difference between a person taking responsibility for oneself and a person looking out to get for oneself? Is there a difference? Can we have healthy families if family members refuse to take responsibility for themselves? So healthy relationships require healthy people. You cannot have a healthy relationship without healthy people. Jesus, perfectly healthy human being of all time, had a relationship with Judas breakdown. Not because Jesus did anything wrong, but because Judas was filled with selfishness. He could not have a healthy relationship with Judas. Many people miss this when they have important relationships in the breakdown. They will often look at themselves and be tempted to go, it's my fault, I should have done this, I should have done that, etc., etc. And they can be led down paths of actually unhealthy compromises trying to hold on to a relationship that needs to end. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. Thus, healthy people take ownership of their own issues, problems, and responsibilities and choose to cooperate with God for their own healing, maturing, and decision-making. That's what healthy people do. That's healthy relationships. Healthy families require healthy parents. And healthy parents are in governance of themselves. So core principles, I'm going to go through some principles that are required or that result in healthy families. And after the idea or principle of personal responsibility, then love. First principle, love. Love for others such that one is willing to sacrifice self for the benefit, eternal good of the other person. Mindset, looking out for the eternal best interest in the other person rather than looking out to get for self. But this often, this practice of love, doing what's best for the other, often requires the practice of the next principle. And what's the next principle? A willingness to tolerate pain. That a loved one will experience as you allow them to make choices on their own. So not being overly protective or overly rescuing when mistakes are made. Or or also applying appropriate discipline to educate and teach or healing interventions which sometimes are uncomfortable and painful. Love will risk being misunderstood, even hated, to do what is right. I will tell you, my mother will tell you, there were times when I got disciplined that when I was a small child, I hate you! You're the meanest mommy in the world! (laughs) Thank you, mother, for, for, for tolerating my outbursts. Seriously, I'm so thankful today that she didn't uh, give in to that and she held me accountable. Very much so. Healthy 
parents are willing to allow their children to be mad at them in order to do what's best for them. Do you agree? So love, willingness to tolerate pain in order to do what's right. Next principle, freedom, liberty. Balancing our actions of uh, balancing our actions of this principle of liberty to not destroy individuality of the child, not dominating, not controlling, but also setting healthy boundaries for those who are not mature enough to make independent decisions. And so in love, parents will limit freedoms of children to protect them. But what's the goal of parenting? To instill in them the ability to be self-governed so you can stop parenting. Isn't that the goal? To raise your kids in such a way you can quit. <laughs> so, But that's an act of love when they're small to set those boundaries and limit some of their freedoms. But also doctors will limit freedoms of psychotic patients, but then treat them in ways to restore sanity to set them free again. The goal is to give them their freedom back. Or families will limit the freedom of the person with dementia, but the family would love to heal the dementia and give the freedom back. That's what love would do. Such limitations on freedom are not violations of love, but the actions of love to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Ellen White wrote the following in Child Guidance, page 39. The training of children must be conducted on a different principle from that which governs the training of irrational animals. The brute has only to be accustomed to submit to its master. But the child must be taught to control himself. The will must be trained to obey the dictates of reason and conscience. The, a child may be so disciplined as to have, like the beast, no will of its own. His individuality being lost in that of his teacher. Such training is unwise and its effect disastrous. Children thus educated will be deficient in firmness and decision. They are not taught to act from principle. The reasoning powers are not strengthened by exercise. So far as possible, every child should be trained to self-reliance. Do you understand many religious organizations teach a system of rules, and these are the rules you keep them or else without reason, without understanding. And there's a discipline that comes and a punishment that comes that, that the child simply starts thinking, how can I avoid the punishment? How can I keep the rules? They have no understanding of how reality works. This is destructive to individuality. I've seen this in church communities. Haven't you seen it? It's not healthy. It's not wise. So principles so far, love, willingness to tolerate uh, pain, freedom, trust. Trust, which requires, if you're going to have a healthy relationship, trustworthiness. To trust an untrustworthy person is foolish. Yes? This is a great opportunity to transition. As a parent, I have to quit parenting, but I want to transition into a relationship with my adult child. And this is what God is doing to us but sometimes we're still in the child portion. Many Christians live in that child portion. So obedience, 
You think about a parent with a small child. Why, what's the healthy obedience? Why, uh, I remember somebody telling me one time, well, you know, when I was small, I didn't smoke because my mother had a rule, and if I smoked, I'd get punished. But then I grew, and I realized, uh, uh, actually, I was, be- uh, somebody told me this, I was behind uh, uh, the, uh, the house, and I was with some friends, and I was smoking a cigarette. My mother caught me, and she brought me inside, and she sat me down and said, son, if you ever begin smoking, you're going to break my heart. And he said it just touched him. He just never wanted to hurt his mother like that. He cried, so he never smoked again. Is that the best reason not to smoke? Either one of those reasons. I'll get punished or I'll break mommy's heart. <laughs> Many Christians operate there. Well, God has a rule. If I don't keep the Sabbath, God will punish me. I don't want to get punished. So I'll keep the Sabbath. Oh, I realize that God loves me and I love him so much. If I don't keep that, it breaks his heart. I don't want to break God's heart, so I'm going to do it. And this is many think this is the highest level of, of, of a beat. It's not. It's childish. What's the reason not to smoke? It violates design law, laws of health, and, and actually is destructive to the individual. You have understanding and reason behind it, not just because, and you understand now why the mother's heart is broken. And when you understand God's laws, you understand why God's sad when you do it, because you're killing yourself, you're hurting yourself. And then when you understand those reasons, you go, you know what, even if my mother was happy that I smoked, I have a mother who smokes and she, she buys cigarettes for me. When you understand design law, you still wouldn't smoke. Not because it doesn't break your mind. She's happy. But you understand design law. And when you understand that, you do things. This is what Ellen White says. We do what is right because it is right. And right doing pleases God. Is there another hand somewhere? Yeah. As a parent, I don't see how much stop parenting. Because parenting to me is guidance for, for my two kids. It's not giving rules. When they look for input, I'll give them But it's up to them to make decisions. And my son asks me for guidance a lot. But still, he's still at his decision. And a lot of times he'll do what he wants to do. So am I parenting you all? <laughs> do I ever give guidance or, or suggestions or insights that help you and you have to decide on it? When my patients come to see me and they're struggling with problems and I give them guidance, even prescriptions, am I parenting them? They're my kids. Yeah, but are, you, but, but are you parenting or are you now treating them as an adult, giving them the freedom to make their own decisions and sharing your wisdom with them? Is that the same thing? I don't see that as parenting. Parenting is actually when you actually intervene and say, here's what you need to do, and I'm going to set a boundary and I'm going to enforce this because you're not old enough to enforce it yourself. Actually, I did set a boundary like that. You're going to install cabinets. No, you're not. I'm going to take care of it and I got it done. So I did intervene and I made a decision. So that was parenting there. And it got down the right way. Okay? And then did you uh, help your adult child learn? Yes. 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 The consequences of choosing the, uh, the, bad, the bad cabinets. I have evidence to prove it. Go ahead. There's actually a counter example you're talking about that's actually voted in society, it's actually in the military environment. So when a new recruit comes in, whether they're enlisted or even even an officer corps, they're brought in collectively into this what we call boot camp, and they're collected and their individual will is broken down. The purpose of that boot camp is to break that will, that individual will down, to join it into a collective will. And then within that collective will, they can then use that will to push the objectives of the military. And that is that. that, that that's a specific training technique that's implemented. And I don't know if many people realize that that's what they're doing. I could see how it could be perceived that way. And certain militaries do use that structure. Certain militaries, communist militaries, really use that structure because they do not want thinking. They only want compliance and obedience. The U.S. military, though, does not use that structure. 
the U.S. military, they, they do not want to break the will of the soldier. They do want to build bonds of cohesion and morale and love for your, your, and, and, and teamwork where you're willing to subordinate your will for the good of the team. But the motive that drives that is love. They want to build a bond of that group where we love our person in the unit next to us. And because of the love for the person, the bonds of brotherhood, I'm willing to subordinate my self-interest and protect myself and put myself in harm's way. And then I'm willing to think and act as an individual in a circumstance if the situation would be better for my unit. People who have their wills broken don't, aren't able to do that. And this is why oftentimes in certain conflicts, the U.S. military really succeeds because they have individuals who can still use their will and act autonomously for the best of the unit. But some of those other organizations don't succeed because they don't have that individual thought. They're afraid to think. So I think you're right in some militaries, but not the U.S. military. It, it doesn't, it does, it's purposely designed not to break the wills, but to build cohesion and a morale and a love for each other with individual thinking within the bounds of what the structure permits. So I, I think that was a good point to po point out, but I wanted to make that differentiation. I spent eight years in the military as a division psychiatrist for the 3rd Infantry Division. And, um, and I, I think I have a little experience with, with how we were operating and what we were trying to do and achieve with our organization. So trust requires trustworthiness and then truthfulness, honesty and communication. And I'm not going to go into that because there's several other important things I want to get. And then setting and maintaining healthy boundaries. Last paragraph, it says, Yes, in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, all humanity has been reconciled to God and to one another. What does this mean? All humanity has been reconciled to God. Well, there's a quote that they, they reference out of Colossians for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Does this text mean that all humanity has been reconciled to God because all things in heaven and earth have been reconciled? Is that, is that what that means? That's how it's being used, and I can see how somebody can imply that, but be a reasonable observer of reality. Has all humanity been reconciled to God? Well, then it doesn't mean that. It means something else. All things are reconciled to God. Well, that would, to me, mean that through Jesus Christ, the species human has been reconciled to God, and earth is reclaimed and will be the home of the human species, and God has made all things new. The angelic beings who had uncertainties and questions had all of those questions answered and were solidified in their loyalty to God, as well as any other intelligences that might have had questions. So all things, meaning all species in the universe, are now reconciled, but not all individuals. Is it more like uh, reconciled as in a checkbook reconciliation? where you come to a conclusion, yet some things are on the negative side and some things are on the positive side. All things in heaven and earth reconciled to God through Christ. Because even it says uh, Satan will admit, you know, yes, you're, you're Lord, and the evil will admit I see what you're saying. All things are, um, you know, added up. And I can see that application. I was really more thinking about the reconciliation of salvation when we were brought into unity with him. And I'm, I'm, so I can see that point could be a lie. I don't think everyone has been reconciled in the sense that we're restored to oneness with God. I don't think that's happened or will ever happen. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. But, you know, I'm going to skip, skip this because we don't have time. We're, we're getting slow, uh, and I want to move on to some other things. We may come back if we have time, but it's going to be doubtful. 
So Tuesday's lesson. It says the lesson focuses on selfishness and how it destroys families. Uh, how would you describe selfishness? What motivates? What's the motivator that drives people to act selfishly? The prime motivator. Fear. Fear. That's right. Fear of not being loved. Fear of not being liked. Good enough. Fear of uh, not getting enough. Fear of not having enough. Fear of getting hurt. Fear of being rejected. Fear of being re- betrayed. And, and what is it that reduces or combats fear and selfishness? Love and trust. Love and trust. Okay, make those things go down. And so most of us recognize the obvious manifestations of selfishness in families. You know, the abuse, the cruel words, the hateful speech, uh, so forth. We recognize that. It's easy to see. I want to know whether we can recognize it when it's not so obvious. I'm going to give some examples. How about a child disobeys a parent, and the parent, rather than disciplining and enforcing a boundary that was previously set, tells them, don't do it again, but lets them off this time. Is this love? Or could this be a parent who doesn't like the distress it causes them when they discipline. So to avoid their own emotional discomfort, they don't discipline the child but allow themselves to think they're showing mercy. Is that love or is that selfishness? How about a parent is shopping with their young child and the child sees some candy and wants it, but the parent doesn't want them to have it. The child makes a scene so the parent buys the candy and the child quiets down. Is this love on the parent's part or selfishness? How about a husband is frustrated because his wife discloses to friends that he recently had a demotion at work. He wasn't yet ready to disclose this to this information, and his wife has a long pattern of sharing such personal information before he's ready for it to be known. But rather than confront his wife with his frustration and hurt, he keeps silent to avoid an argument which he knows will ensue. First question, was the action of the wife an act of love or an act of selfishness? Is the action of the husband to not discuss it an act of love or an act of selfishness? Do we recognize the selfishness in these settings? Is it so obvious? You see it very clearly. Or do these sometimes get missed? How about this one? A husband loves his wife so much uh, and finds her so beautiful that he is certain he isn't good enough for her, and, and it is only a matter of time until she finds some other man better than him, so he constantly monitors her, questions her fidelity, accuses her of looking at other men when they go out to eat, checks on her, interrogates her on where she's been, who she's uh, talked to, whether she uh, really loves him and wants to be with him. He claims he only does this because he loves her so much. Is this love or selfishness? How about a wife had an affair with a co-worker 10 years ago? 10 years ago. She repented, uh, confessed to her husband. Husband forgave her. Been no more affairs, complete fidelity since that point. Uh, but frequently the husband reminds her of that affair. that he, And he reminds her that he has been faithful to her. And she was not faithful to him. And that, that her unfaithfulness and her disobedience was sin while he remained loyal and faithful and kept the Lord's commands and has been loyal to God in the way he has acted as a husband to his wife while she was a sin, was a sinful. And she should be lucky. She has such a gracious husband who has forgiven her and allowed her to stay married. Love or selfishness? You think I make this stuff up? I don't make this stuff up. Do we recognize selfishness when it's taking an action 
not to directly hurt another person, but protecting ourselves from feeling something uncomfortable. If we love others, are we willing to take actions that are objectively right, healthy, reasonable, and good, even if another person might be upset with us for doing it? Do we love them enough to let them be mad at us to do what's best? Remember the slogan? Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Could you risk your friend getting upset with you by taking their keys? Well, that's a principle. That's what love does. Love doesn't care whether you get mad. I'm not going to get mad if you want. It's okay. I love you enough to let you. I can tell you so many people never get over this hurdle in their relationships. They're constantly compromising because they can't tolerate the person that they're in a relationship with being upset with them. For example, if you know somebody's having an affair um, with a friend of yours, or you know one of the couple that's a friend is having an affair with somebody, and you elect not to tell the one who doesn't know that their spouse is having an affair. So if you know somebody is taking IV heroin and the spouse doesn't know it, what would you do? If you love them, would you go to the person using the heroin first and offer to help them get into treatment? Would you maybe go to the person you know is having the affair first and offer to help them repent and put their marriage right and deal with their own issues? Only if you love them enough to die for them. That's right. Only if you love them enough to die for them. Ellen White actually says it. If you know somebody is committing sin and you think it's your right to help set your, your place to set them right, do you love them enough that you would die for them? If you do, then you're the person to go talk to them. If you don't, you're not. Wednesday's lesson, Ephesians 5.21. Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ. Submit one to another out of reference, reverence for Christ. Who is sub- to submit to whom in this passage? Well, look at the first paragraph. It says, the word submit, Ephesians 5.21, means to place oneself humbly before another person on the basis of voluntary choice. This unique principle began with Christ and characterizes all those who are filled with his spirit. Reverence for Christ is what motivates people to submit this way. Mutually, mutuality in self-giving was and still is a revolutionary Christian teaching about social relationships. It brings to life the spirituality, spiritual reality that all are one in Christ. There are no exceptions. Oh, this is going to lead us to some very exciting things. Who is to submit to whom? Are we to submit our thinking and individuality to another person? Are wives to submit to their husbands in some way different than the husband is to submit to the wife? You are a bunch of heretics. Man. I, wanted, I, want, I, I got a couple of interesting quotes from Ellen White I wanted to share with you. Daughters of God 183. A woman that will submit to the ever dictated to be ever dictated to in the smallest matters of domestic life, who will yield up her identity, will never be of much use or blessing in the world and will not answer the purpose of God in her existence. She is a mere machine to be guided by another's will and another's mind. God has given each one, men and women, an identity and an individuality, and they must act in the fear of God for themselves. Wow. Here's another one. She, she, she is brilliant. She really wrote some good, good stuff. Uh, uh, TSB uh, 29. It says, Your course since your marriage in taking possession 
and of controlling the means of her whom you had made your wife shows your motives to be wrong. All these things are against you and show on your part very deep selfishness and a dictatorial spirit which God would not have her submit to. Her marriage does not make null and void her stewardship. It does not destroy her identity. Her individuality should be preserved if she would glorify God with her body and spirit, which are his. Her individuality cannot be submerged in yours. She has a duty which she owes to God, which you have no right to interfere with. (laughs) Woo, isn't this good stuff? Okay, one more. 18 manuscript release, page 263. This goes the other direction, guys. I beseech you in the mercies of God that you take your position for the right without reference to the will or judgment of your wife. You have allowed her mind to be controlling the controlling power in your life. Yet you do not see this or many other things you ought to see because you are not prepared to see them in light of the Spirit of God. For years your wife has refused to submit herself to the influence of the Holy Spirit. She has never been transformed in character. She has a strong mind and a powerful influence over you which confuses your judgment, making you in some respects a weak man. While you allow her to lead you on, while you consent to merge your individuality in hers, anything I say... Anything I may say to you or write to you will be as idle tales. So what is healthy submission? I can't tell you how many Christians I have come see me, especially women who have, uh, have been told by their pastors that they are to submit to the authority of their husbands and follow their direction like a child and a parent. That is not what God wants. That's destructive. That's a violation of the law of liberty. Love can't grow in that relationship. So what do you think of the principle in the lesson that they highlighted of mutuality in self-giving? That's what they call mutuality as a unique Christian principle. Would relationships of dominance, control, forced submission be in harmony with God's design? Might the Bible condemn such relationships? Some people believe this type of relationship of this domination, this forced submission and control is exactly what the Bible is condemning when it condemns homosexuality. Homosexuality in Roman in the Roman world was not a loving, mutual, self-giving, in a committed, other-centered relationship, but was a domination and forced submission on the subordinate. From an article in the Huffington Post, which was reposted in Yahoo, uh, Evangelical Reverend Canon Stephen Chalk examining archaeological artwork from Pompeii. You may know Pompeii was preserved very pristinely in the volcanic ash in A.D. 79, which was when Paul was writing his New Testament. So it gives us a real insight into the culture in which Paul was living at the time. And... Looking at the um, re- uh, what's been recovered in Pompeii and the artwork there and uh, other materials, Chalk explains that the Apostle Paul was writing during a time when it was perfectly acceptable for people on the lower rungs of society, slaves, prostitutes, gladiators, refugees, to be sexually exploited and abused by rich and powerful Roman citizens. Um, it was normal and even expected for Roman men to have sexual playthings apart from their wives. This meant having sex with concubines and young boys. Some Roman women also used people of lower status for their own sexual pleasure. But one thing Romans could not do was abuse another Roman citizen. Roman boys were protected in a way that slave boys were not. 
For a Roman man, sex was a legitimate part of life, but you had to have sex with an inferior and you had to penetrate them. You were never allowed to be penetrated. It was this kind of exploitation of fellow human beings that Chalk believes Paul and other New Testament writers were speaking out against when they wrote these ancient scriptures in 1 Timothy and Corinthians and Romans, making reference to men who have sex with other men. It's part of a much longer list of people who are exploitive, murderers, slave traders, liars, perjurers, thieves, the greedy, slanderers, and swindlers. So, Chalk believes that Paul is warning the early Christian church against engaging in human relationships that are based on exploitation, abuse, and corruption. On the other hand, he claims the New Testament has nothing to say about genuine, compassionate love between people of the same gender as it's understood in the world today. So what do you think about Chalk's conclusions? Let's bring Ezekiel in and see if Ezekiel refutes or would seem to support what Chalk says. This is Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. Now this, is the sin, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Yes? Uh, no, 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 the daughters of Sodom were all, they have the seven cities, Gomorrah and, and, the, and the five other cities. When the cities were destroyed, there were seven cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and five other cities. The daughters were, I think, all these others that were practicing the same principles. Well, that's something to think about. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the, um, the account of Lot and uh, the angels in Sodom, the angry mobs bring your bring your guests out when they know them. This is not a this is not a uh, sexually inflamed crowd. It's a it's a crowd that wants to dominate. It's a crowd that wants to to coerce and to. Um, and how many men did it say turned out? The entire town. All men, hundred percent. Is that what we're dealing with in our society today? Hundred percent of society are homosexual men who want to go abuse other people. That's not what we're dealing with. So what about Romans 1, when it talks about men and women giving up natural affections for their sin? Right, and so Romans 1 is the context of, if you look at Romans one eighteen and starting a verse there, uh, they are uh, exchanging worship first. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They, they made images with their own hands. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So Paul first is telling you that these people are engaged in um, Roman cult fertility worship practices. And then if you exchange the truth of God, then the law of worship comes to bear. By beholding, we become changed. We become changed in ways that we wouldn't be changed when we worship the, 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 the bad stuff. And then he says when they do that, a whole long list of things that happen, including all this, this, this violent, ugly, corrupt stuff, and they exchange natural relationships for unnatural ones and became inflamed with desires for the same sex. Let me ask you this. Can I exchange this yellow shirt for a blue one if I don't possess a yellow one? If I'm going to make an exchange, don't I have to first possess something to exchange? They exchange natural for unnatural. This, this, what Paul's describing is not what we call homosexuality today. He's describing people who are heterosexual. And through these debased fertility cult practices became inflamed with desires for the same sex they never had before. This is a corruption of a design and we shouldn't do it. This would be like saying, it's 
And we have actually, we have written into the code, just like Paul is writing down. He's writing down a, a, a code, if you will. Don't do these things because these things cause these problems. Don't, don't worship all this stuff. Don't exchange the truth of God for, for a lie and worship all this corruption because this is what happens. It, and we have OSHA regulations for employers for welding, that they, they have specific codes that you cannot uh, 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 give uh, your employers a, a task to weld if they don't have proper eye protection. You've got to put so much uh, uh, protection before their eyes because if you don't, you'll cause blindness, and, that, and we don't want to cause blindness. Does that mean people who are bl- born blind um, are, 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 are bad? No. This is about, about damaging something that isn't already damaged in some way. Now, blindness is not God's design. God did not design blindness. Blindness happens in this world because of sin in the world. All nature groans under the weight of sin. Same-sex relationships were not designed by God. In the same way, blindness was not designed. It's a consequence of altered gene mutation and other epigenetic processes and, and, and uh, embryological development that causes individuals to develop in ways that are different from God's original design. But that would be like somebody being born blind, not somebody who can see and purposely stares at the sun or welds without protection. We should condemn people in practices that teach kids to go out and look at the sun without protection on their eyes. Do you remember when the eclipse came? How many of you went and watched the eclipse? And we got these special lenses that were solar protective where we could look up at the sun and not have our eyes damaged. It would have been wrong to say, just go out and watch the eclipse, people. And that's what the Bible, and I understand, is condemning in that, in that, in that setting. Sunday's lesson, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Let's read it from the NIV. It says, Therefore remember what, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by hands of men, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And uh, and in his body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to, uh, to death their hostility. I'm going to stop the, at that point. Wh- what do you think that means? Is that really plain and clear to everybody? Oh, I know exactly what that means. What law lens do you look through? When, what do you hear? What did Christ accomplish? It, what, law, what law is being dealt with here? What are the two that are made into one? Well, since we're running out of time, I'll go ahead and read this section out of the remedy and see if it, if it sounds, uh, give you my insights. Therefore, remember that you, who were born into the dark superstitions of the world, were considered uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, as they experienced bodily circumcision by human hands. That was before your minds were enlightened about Christ, and therefore you were separate from him, and you were not members of Israel, who was God's spiritual health care team and therefore were unacquainted with God's plan to heal and restore you. Your condition was terminal because you were without God and therefore without hope and in the darkness of the world. But now you, whose minds were once far away and who were practicing the principles of selfishness and survival of the fittest, have been enlightened and brought near to God and are in unity with Christ through the truth revealed when he died. For Christ himself is the remedy that heals the species and brings peace. 
He has removed fear and selfishness that cause division, mistrust, prejudice, and hostility. He did this by partaking of our human condition. And via the exercise of his human brain, he loved perfectly, thereby destroying in his flesh the humanity he partook, the selfish survival fittest drive, along with the lies of Satan. In this way, he destroyed the need for the law, with all its regulations, to expose Satan's lies and methods. His purpose was to be the template of a new humanity, born out of the unification of the two. Our selfish, infected condition merged with his sinless state, thereby purging selfishness from the human heart and transforming, healing, renewing, regenerating, recreating humanity back to God's original ideal. And in this new being, to reconcile the human race, regardless of ethnic background, into loving unity with God and each other through the revelation of the truth at the cross by which he destroyed Satan's lies, reestablished trust, and removed fear, selfishness, and hostility. Questions, thoughts? Any questions about anything today? (laughs) Do you see that the plan of salvation is the plan to heal, restore, recreate humanity back to God's original ideal as he intended Adam and Eve to be. Thus God is working through Christ to reveal truth about himself to win you to trust so that when you trust him you will open your heart and receive through the Holy Spirit the achievements of Christ and be a new person with new motives and new methods and new desires and new character so that you can be a light of God's principles This is reality, it's achievement, it's design law, it's not legal. The entire legal penal thing is an infection to Christian thought that obstructs God's healing plan. And he's really waiting for that that end-time people to rise up and, and call people back to be in awe of God and give glory to him by revealing his character in your life. For the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God and see Him as our Creator. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, designer of all reality, and stop worshiping this imperial dictator that Rome has gotten the entire world drunk upon. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are an amazing God who created the universe to operate in harmony with your principles and characters of, of love. We thank you for Jesus who came to achieve for us what we could never achieve, the perfection of humanity. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit of truth and love will come and and enlighten us to the realities of your kingdom and your methods and your principles and your character and win us over to trust and in trust. May you instill and imbue within us all the character traits of Christ and help us grow up to be full, mature sons and daughters of God, revealing your principles in this world that you may come soon in your holy name. Amen.